This morning at the conclusion of the service, we're going to have a baptism. I know we have baptisms frequently uh, here at the chapel, but this one will look a little bit different. You may have noticed as you walked in, there's a uh, livestock watering tank sitting out in the little courtyard full of water. Um, We're going to baptize the three Garrett boys by immersion this morning. Some of you may have never seen someone get immersed. Others of you may believe that's the only proper way to baptize anyone. We have some difference of opinions on that. But the larger issue is not how we baptize someone. The larger issue is what does it mean? Obviously, baptism is a symbol, but a symbol of what? Many would quickly respond, well, it's a symbol, it's a testimony of my faith in Jesus. And there's an element of truth to that. We don't baptize people outside the faith. But I would argue that primarily baptism is not a symbol of our faith. It's a symbol of God's covenant of grace. A symbol of the promises of God which we believe, not a symbol of our believing. In order that we might see the richness and depth of God's covenant promises this morning, I want us to return to one of the first expressions of God's covenant, where we first learn about faith and where we see the most vivid picture of God's grace. Now, we looked at this passage years ago when we studied through Genesis, but it's worth our consideration again this morning. Genesis chapter 15. Let me read it. It's not a very long uh, chapter. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and three, uh, uh, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in this country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the river 
of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and Hittites, Parasites, Raphaelites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And there we'll end the reading of God's word. This chapter is one of the most uh, momentous passages in the whole Bible. Here we learn that the law of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai is not the foundational covenant uh, by which God uh, deals with his people. It's only a temporary uh, latecomer. Instead, this account presents God's covenant of grace as the controlling reality in God's dealing with mankind. Now, I will admit in advance, we cannot possibly deal with everything that this chapter talks about, but I will hope we will learn three great, profound, but simple truths this morning. The first is this. God promises us himself. God promises us himself. It would be easy for us to approach this chapter with a rather narrow perspective. Here God promises uh, Abram two things. He promises him descendants, as many as the stars of the heavens. And he promises him a land that's geographically defined here. A land eventually controlled by King David and King Solomon. Now, much of the emphasis in the church in recent years has focused on those tangible things that God promised Israel, a people and a land. But upon upon more careful study, it becomes clear that in reality, those things, the land and the people, were only a token of the much greater reality that God had promised Abraham. God was promising Abraham nothing less than his own self. And that promise is extended to us as well. We might miss that truth, except for the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament, who carefully unpack this chapter in in great detail. Consider, first of all, uh, the, the, the matter of the descendants, the promise of descendants. We read that promise from the Lord in verse 5. Um, he took Abram outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. Sure enough, about 400 years later, Moses said to Abram's descendants, the people of Israel, the Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars of the sky. Oh, but the apostle Paul taught us that God had an even greater reality in mind than that. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul argues that the real descendant that God had in mind here was the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just lots of Jews, not lots of Israelites, but the Lord Jesus. In Galatians 3, we read, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. But Galatians didn't stop there. These blessings which are inherited by Christ are then given to all those who are in Christ, who know Christ. If you belong to Christ, it says, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul can write, so then he is the father of all who believe, Not only those who are of the law, that is the physical descendants of Abraham, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. 
But now if the promise is not just an ethnic promise, but it's to those in Christ, Jew and Gentile, then what exactly is it that God is promising here? He's promising Abraham and his descendants, not physical, but all his descendants of faith, nothing less than himself. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that special relationship we later come to learn includes the forgiveness of our sin, resurrection to a new life, the intimate indwelling of the Holy Spirit, personal relationship with with, uh, God himself, and eternal living fellowship with the Father. God promises us himself. Or consider the other promise about the land. We read about that in verse 18 here. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. And he spells out all the people who were the current residents of that land. And as history history demonstrated, uh, sure enough, God kept that promise. Abraham's descendants went down into Egypt, just like God had predicted. But 400 years later, God sent Moses and delivered them out of that slavery and brought them back to this land. Under Joshua's leadership, they, took in, they went in and took possession of the land of Canaan, just like God had said. So that in the time of Solomon, we read that God had so expanded the borders of Israel that all the people left from all of these people, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites and the Hivites, all that was left of those people that hadn't been destroyed were conscripted labor for Solomon, King Solomon. The Lord had subdued these people and had given them, the Israelites, that land. But again, when we look at the rest of the Bible, we learn that God has much more than land in view when he made these promises to Abram. For example, in the Galatians 3 passage where the singular seed is identified as a reference to Christ Jesus. There Paul talks about the promise given. He refers to the inheritance promised. Well, according to Genesis 12, a passage a lot like Genesis 15, the inheritance was the land. To your seed I will give this land. In other words, the land promised to Abraham was the same thing God later promised to Abraham's seed the Lord Jesus Christ. So exactly what land has God given to the Lord Jesus? Abraham's seed. The Apostle Paul has no doubt. In Romans 1 he explained Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. That's exactly what God had promised his son in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations, your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You see, Christ is the heir of everything. The whole earth, the whole universe. And those who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, will reign with him in glory. You see, God's promises are not just about that some little piece of real estate in the Middle East. That was just a token. This is about God calling people into relationship with himself in Christ to reign with him over everything for all of eternity. God promises us himself. 
And the truth is, Abraham understood something of this far-reaching greater promise. For we read in Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city whose foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Then again, a couple of verses later, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. They were waiting for a better country, a heavenly one. God's faith, Abram's faith was much more sophisticated than we might think. He understood God was promising, more, promising him more than a big family that became a big nation and more than a nice ranch that became the whole land of Israel. God was promising him his very self. And that's exactly what God said in his opening words to Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. As the great preacher of a century ago, Charles Hedden Spurgeon, explained, it is not the land of Canaan. That was to be given to Abraham, but that was not his great reward. It is not a posterity, though he pined for that. No, it is not anything that God will give him. It is God himself. I, Jehovah, the Hebrew is very emphatic, I, Jehovah, am thy exceedingly great reward. The Lord himself is the portion of his people. This morning I challenge you. What's your greatest treasure? Perhaps the reason that Christians tend to emphasize so much the land and the descendants as we read these promises in the Old Testament, is that we're all into land and descendants ourselves. We like that physical prosperity. But that's not primarily what God has promised to give us. God sent the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to reconcile us to himself, that we might know him and serve him forever. What sacrilege if we have no interest in the greatest reward, but would only use him for worldly prosperity. When God has promised us himself. But then again, how could Abraham or we ever lay hold of such a promise? That brings us to the second point. God accepts those who believe him. God accepts those who believe him. Dr. James Boyce wrote, Genesis 15, 6 is one of the most important verses, if not the most important verse in the entire Bible. For it tells for the first time how a sinful man or woman may become right with God. In fact, that verse is so important that it's repeated three more times in the New Testament. Let me read it again, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. 
Now, we don't have to scratch our heads and wonder what the meaning of all that is. The Holy Spirit has given us an extensive divine commentary on it throughout the New Testament. Here we are to learn that right standing before God cannot be attained through our own efforts. Cannot be attained through our own efforts. Listen to the Spirit's explanation of this in Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. God accepts those who believe him, who trustingly rest in his promises, though they in no way deserve his acceptance. So how does this work? Is there some special mystical power in faith? The New Age mysticism that swirls around us these days would have us think that. We hear all the time about how you have this power within yourself. You can do whatever you want to do if you just believe in yourself. That's exactly the opposite of what God is saying here in Genesis and later in the New Testament explanations. As Dr. Ian Duguid explains, there is no special power that resides in an attitude of trust. Abraham's faith was not in, in, faith was not in the power of faith, nor was it a leap in the dark. Abraham's faith was a settled conviction that God would do what he had promised to do, no matter what. And the truth is, what God had promised was absolutely impossible. Abraham was almost 100 years old at this point. His wife Sarah was old too. It was against that reality of their barrenness that God's promises were given. A great nation, multitude of descendants. So for Abraham to believe was to abandon a view of reality which rested on what he could see or do or control. And instead, to rest himself on a greater reality that God was able to do what he said. And that's exactly what the Bible said Abraham did in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He faced the fact 
Yet, he did not waver through unbelief concerning the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. And God accepted Abraham, who believed him. Believed him. Believed him for what was impossible. That's all. And that's why this is such a great verse. Because we need to understand the same thing. This is still how God accepts people. Paul goes on to make that very point in Romans 4. The words it was credited to him were written not just for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is what true faith looks like. It's not some generalized notion that, well, everything will work out all right. But as uh, Walter Brueggemann says, it's a quite specific response to a concrete promise from a known promise maker. The faith of Abraham is certain of one point. There is a future which will be new, which will not be derived from this barrenness. So what are we to believe? Well, it's not just a list of facts. We're to believe him. Trust him. Today, that promise is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God sent his son into the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Impossible. Impossible. God becoming man. God and man. Impossible. That's what God said. That he lived a righteous life, pleasing to the Father, and then willingly went to the cross, laying down his life to pay the penalty for our sin. Can't comprehend that. Impossible. Beyond what I can get my mind around. And that God was pleased with that, and God raised him from the dead the third day. That's impossible. We know people can't rise from the dead. That's what God said. That's what God did. Now he promises forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who abandon their confidence in themselves and turn away from the sin that God hates and rest in Jesus' life and death and resurrection as a substitute for their own. Still sounds impossible, doesn't it? That God could declare us righteous? You and I know better. We're not righteous. We just know we could never change. No, we can't. That's why we so desperately need a Savior. That's why any salvation based on what we do, on our merit, on our trying, is hopeless. And it also looks impossible that such a gift could be free. We know there's no free lunch. You get what you pay for in life, don't you? It's just too easy to just believe, trust Jesus. We're certain our sins must be too great for that. Must, must be more than God could forgive. But this ancient truth still stands, folks. God accepts those who believe him. It's that simple. No matter how impossible 
God accepts those who believe. And the promise, for Jesus said it, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Same thing Abraham did, believe God. Well, before we quit, there's one more thing we have to learn from this passage. That's this. God himself guarantees his promises. God himself guarantees his promises. I love this part of the story. For it shows us that Abraham was just like us. A man of shaky faith. But God was wonderfully assuring, as he still is today. You can see Abraham's shaky faith there in verse 18, in verse 8. Abraham said, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know that I will gain possession of this inheritance? So let's think about how God reassured him, how God guaranteed his promises. To understand what's going on in these verses, 9 to 18, you need to know something about ancient cultural practices. These verses assume that we know how covenants were made back in those times. Uh, There's a solemn ceremony involved. And actually, this practice is probably how uh, the Bible's expression to to cut a covenant is what, when it talks about making a covenant, it literally says almost every time, to cut a covenant. That's where this expression came from. Here's the procedure. Two people are going to make a a, a covenant with each other, going to enter into some binding agreement. They would bring some sacrificial animals for this ceremony, and they would cut the animals in half, laying one part over here and one part over there, one part over here, one over there, one over there, until they had created these two lines of dismembered carcasses with a path between. When, 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 when that had all been set up, the two parties making the covenant would, would uh, lock arms, so to speak, and walk together down this path between these dismembered uh, carcasses. And as they did so, they would pledge their faithfulness to whatever terms of this covenant uh, they, they were making. Now, this seems gory to us, but the symbolism is really powerful. The two parties making the covenant are saying to each other, in effect, May I be like these dismembered animals if I fail to keep my, my word to you. We're we'll talking about signing in blood. That's what this was. To cut a covenant. May I be dead like these guys if I fail to keep my word. So Abraham doubts God. And God says, go get some animals. And set up this covenant ritual. And so Abraham goes, and he brought a heifer, and a goat, and a ram, and a dove, and a pigeon. He knew the routine. And he divided the animals, cut the carcasses up, put them opposite each other, forming the path down the middle, ready for the covenant-making ceremony. And then the Lord didn't return right away. And in the meantime, the birds of prey saw all this free food on the ground, and they all started coming to take it away. And so Abraham's running around trying to chase the birds away, busying himself, waiting for the Lord to come. And finally, as the sun was setting, God caused a deep sleep and a thick darkness to come over Abraham. He was apparently exhausted, and there he is, collapsed, 
passed out on the ground. What a wonderful picture of our futile efforts to earn God's favor. We get weary and passed out. And we still haven't accomplished a thing. And then the strangest thing happened. While Abraham slept, God appeared in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. That's really similar to what we see later as God leads his people through the wilderness in a, a pillar of fire before them. Same kind of imagery. And while Abraham sleeps over here, God passed down this corridor between the dismembered animals all alone without Abram sealing his covenant with Abram. Oh, do you understand what happened here? God made a covenant with Abram, all right. He established a new relationship. He, 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 he sealed those promises that he had made that we've been talking about. But only God took the oath. The faithful execution of the terms of the covenant were made to rest on God alone. Not Abraham, who was passed out on the ground. God himself guaranteed his covenant of grace. Dear folks, herein lies the certainty of our salvation. It does not rest on our ability to hang on. It is pure grace. God saves us. What was pictured that day in that solemn ceremony was accomplished by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Ian Duguid explains this. He says, by what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abraham? It could only have been demonstrated more vividly if it actually became reality that the ever-living God took human nature and tasted death. Because of the breaking of the covenant. And that's precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. On the cross, all the covenant curse fell on Jesus. So that the guilty ones who placed their trust in him might experience the blessing of the covenant. Jesus bore our sins so that God might be our God and we might be his people. You see, on the cross, Jesus fulfilled to the fullest extent, very literally fulfilled by his dying, what God had promised in his covenant with Abraham. God himself guaranteed the promise of the gospel even at the cost of his own blood. And folks, that's why we can know that we have eternal life. If it rested on you and how you're doing, you would never know for sure, nor would I. But when we look away from ourselves and rest 
solely on the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have absolute confidence for God himself guarantees his promises. So the baptism that we will witness today doesn't look at the faith experience of these young believers, though we delight in that. No, baptism looks to the reality of God's covenant of grace, which has now been fulfilled and revealed in its greatest fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that covenant is essentially the same for us as it was for Abraham. God promises us himself. Said to Abraham, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. And he says to him and to us, you will be my people and I will be your God. God accepts those who believe in him. Abraham believed God in spite of how impossible it was and God called him righteous. And so we are told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And God himself guarantees his promises. God walked alone, sealing the covenant. And Jesus suffered alone, taking the penalty of our covenant breaking, that we might know that we have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. It's that simple. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Pictured uh, extravagantly in history, in things so far back that we hardly can understand what was going on. And yet, as we learn more, we just are amazed at how you set before us this reality of your grace. So, Lord, may we not confuse it. May we understand the greatness of what you've offered us, not money, not houses, not lands, not family, but yourself, Lord. And may we believe, though it sounds so impossible, though every day sometimes it looks even more impossible, God, give us faith to keep believing you. And thank you that it doesn't rest on us and our efforts, but on you alone, that we can trust you for our salvation. Take these truths and etch them on our hearts, that we would never forget, that we would never walk away from them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.